Hello and welcome to Spotlight. I'm Kyle Campbell, a senior reporter for PERE, and today we're looking at Opportunity Zones. Created by a relatively unsung provision of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, by 2019, Opportunity Zones were poised to be the next big thing in real estate fundraising. Offering lucrative tax breaks to wealthy individuals who invest in America's downtrodden neighborhoods, the program seemed to blend doing good and doing well in a way that appealed to both sides of the political aisle. While the perks of Opportunity Zones, or OZs as they are known, are geared toward individual investors, the program's potential for capital aggregation and impact investing attracted the likes of Brookfield, Bridge Investment Group, and CIM Group, all of whom have raised hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in Opportunity Zones. But for all its early fanfare, the program has largely faded from the headlines. What's happened in the space during the past two years? Quite a bit, it turns out. And not all of it fits within the original spirit of the legislation. There's an office tower in downtown Portland, Oregon, that's now occupied by Northwest Natural Gas, the natural gas utility. And that building was permitted, financed, built, and had a long-term lease from a public utility, but it didn't yet have a certificate of occupancy. And as a result, the original developers were able to sell it to an Opportunity Zone fund, and those investors got a capital gains tax break for investing in a building for which, if there is ever something with no risk, that must be it. The building's built and occupied by a public utility with a long-term lease. So that kind of stuff, is it's just wrong. That's David Wessel, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and director of the Brookings Institute's Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy. His latest book, Only the Rich Can Play, How Washington Works in the New Gilded Age, explores the Opportunity Zone program, how it came to be, the ambitions behind it, and the realities that have taken shape thus far. So, interestingly, Opportunity Zones were originally conceived by Sean Parker of Facebook and Napster fame, not as a way to invest in real estate, but as a way to raise capital for startup businesses, particularly outside of the East and West Coasts. But it turns out in practice that the bulk of the money that's been raised for Opportunity Zones has come from real estate. Obviously, there was initially some interest in offices, but that died down after the pandemic. I think it's more multifamily housing and some retail and commercial stuff. You know, unfortunately, we don't really know how much money went into Opportunity Funds because the reporting requirement was stripped out of the uh, original bill because of the way the Senate parliamentarian ruled on it. But my guess is we're talking about $75, $80 billion so far. And I would say from the evidence we have that the bulk of that has gone to real estate, commercial real estate. Data on Opportunity Zones, as Wessel notes, is hard to come by. The best estimate comes from the accounting firm Novogratic, which has tallied $20 billion of equity commitments to OZ funds through September 2021. Roughly 95% of that capital is targeting real estate. And by Novogratic's estimate, its data only accounts for about a third, or maybe even a quarter, of total investment into opportunity zones. There's something we know and something we don't know. What we know is the big opportunity zone funds that are public in their fundraising and disclosure are almost entirely in real estate. We don't know very much about individuals who may have had capital gains and decided to set up their own little opportunity zone fund. And then there's a whole nother segment of people we know zero about, 
which are corporations that may have capital gains and are using opportunity zones as a way to reduce their capital gains tax, but doing it in ways that are completely invisible. So, for instance, there's some evidence that some big telephone companies are using opportunity zones to put cell phone towers on the tops of buildings in opportunity zones and getting the break, even though, of course, that doesn't do anything for anybody who lives there. Effective as the OZ program has been for some investors and capital raisers, success in the space has not been universal. In fact, many sponsors had to scale down their ambitions, while others have abandoned them altogether. Well, first of all, it's no surprise everybody's going to raise a $500 billion fund or whatever, and people always like to hype that. And as best you can tell, many people have not realized their goal. So I think there was a lot of hype. Some people have given up. Uh, One fund I talked to, I heard them hype their thing. It was going to be great for student housing. In the end, they gave up. It wasn't the efficient way for them to raise money for student housing there. And of course, there's the famous story of Anthony Scaramucci, who was going to raise $3 billion for his opportunity fund and ended up with $45 million in one project, a hotel in New Orleans. The hedge fund executive and short-lived White House press secretary, Scaramucci, spoke glowingly about the OZ program as a keynote speaker at PERE's 2019 Investor Forum in Los Angeles. His French Quarter boutique hotel was far from the only upscale OZ project in a thriving commercial district. Capital raised through the program has flowed disproportionately into a handful of neighborhoods, most of which were already on the rise, Wessel said. Of the 8,764 qualified opportunity zones throughout the country, only 16% received any investment through the OZ program according to a Congressional Committee's review of 2019 tax returns. And 50% of OZ capital went to the top 1% of zones. Wessel says this is the result of the legislation's laissez-faire architecture. Once you have so many zones and so little requirement that you show that you're doing something for people who live there, it's not surprising that your ordinary real estate investor would prefer to, say, put money into a hotel condo complex with the Ritz-Carlton brand in Portland, Oregon, as opposed to doing, you know, six units of affordable housing in the gritty neighborhood of Baltimore. So I think what evidence we have and what I saw on the ground suggests that, as you would expect, the money is in general flowing to places that were already drawing lots of investment, uh, not places that were starved for investment that look relatively less attractive. Proponents of the program say it was natural for more lucrative projects in less depressed areas to capture the first wave of OZ investment. Those same groups also point to a key date, December 31st, 2026. That's the deadline to make qualifying investments into opportunity zones. And even then, investments would need to remain in place for 10 years for investors to maximize their benefits. So, with so much time left on the clock, it might be a bit early to be assessing the program's successes and failures. That's a fair argument. Um, Look, half the book is about how this became law. How did Sean Parker, of all people, get something into the tax code when so many other people have tried to get things into the tax code or change government policy and failed? And so I would say, yeah, this is the early returns. Um, But I also think that what we've seen so far identifies some of the weaknesses in the law or the regulations that if we're going to improve the program so it's more likely to serve the desired purpose, a book like mine should help guide that. But if you're asking me, do I think it's fair in October 2021 to write the final verdict on this thing? The answer is absolutely not. Proposed changes to the law include limiting the types of eligible property investments, 
requiring more disclosures, offering greater incentives to invest in worse off areas, and extending deadlines for investment. But Wessel does not expect any of these to materialize soon. In part because it got labeled as a Trump tax bill, it's pretty polarized. So I think there are people who are afraid that once you open up this law, which way is it going to go? Are they going to destroy the program or are they going to make it more generous? And that kind of dynamics tend to make it hard to get anything done. Uh, But the way Washington works, we could wake up some morning and discover that there was some provision slipped into a reconciliation bill in conference that did some things. So I don't rule out the possibility, but I think at the moment it looks pretty unlikely. The Opportunity Zone program had two goals when it was created, providing tax breaks to wealthy investors and improving the quality of life in America's struggling neighborhoods, towns, and cities. Three years in, the former has been more successful than the latter, Wessel argues. Along the way, it has proven to be a powerful tool for fundraisers, at least those with a track record in real estate. Wessel also credits the initiative with a non-commercial accomplishment, shifting the way policymakers and impact investors think about inequality. There is now much more appreciation of the importance of geographic inequality in the United States. The inequality we have is not just the widening gap between rich and poor, rich and middle class, but it's also some places are doing really well and some are not. And the sense that as a society we have to do something for these left behind places, I think has gained some traction. So I could imagine if we get to grapple with that issue again, that somehow a refined opportunity zone tax incentive with more guardrails might be part of that. Um, But we're not there yet. We're not there now. That's all for today. To hear more episodes of Spotlight, check us out wherever you listen to podcasts or on PEI Media's various titles online. For PERE, I'm Kyle Campbell. Thanks for listening.